Welcome to Honest Money, your best guide to financial freedom. I'm Warren Ingram, the author of a few best-selling books, and I'm also an award-winning financial planner, and I've helped thousands of people on their journey to financial freedom. I'm not here to tell you what to do, but I am here to share my experience and the best ideas that I've learned, and I hope these ideas help you on your journey to financial freedom. This episode is proudly brought to you by Outvest, the online investment platform powered by Outsurance. Visit outvest.co.za today and see how quick and easy it is to get 100% global equity investment exposure with the Outvest Global Wealth Builder. Welcome to Honest Money. It's uh, fantastic to have you all listening to us. I appreciate it. And uh, and today, again, um, I'm in the hot seat. Uh, I've been asked to answer questions rather than ask them. And so I'm really glad to have Grant Locke, who's head of Outfest, uh, in, the, in the firing line again. Thanks, Grant, for, for firing your questions at me. I appreciate you being here. And and for, for everyone listening, this is about global investing made easy again. Uh, and, and I say again, because we have done a couple of episodes already, uh, and I think there's just so much to cover and and we just felt you know it's important to kind of get this topic done properly so grant thanks so much for agreeing to join us and i know you're enjoying uh, putting me in the on the other side of the question so uh, far away when you're ready oh thanks warren it's good to be here so i i think on this one though this is this is one that i've been looking forward to for a while because today it's getting to the fund stuff fund the fun stuff no okay. when you worked in asset management as long as i have whenever you write a whatsapp and you write fun it automatically comes with a d on the end of it so it's fun and fund together which is kind of one of the f- best things that we like to do is in, in the asset management industry the investment geeks so yeah so i think i'd also just like to kick off with a, a little quote um that was in your book global investing made easy and it's a quote by george soros and i thought it was quite telling because we have a lot of conversations about investing these days and the quote is if investing is entertaining if you're having fun duh, you're probably not making any money good investing is boring and that was by george soros george soros is probably one of the world's most well-known investors and he was a guy who was credited with breaking the bank of england i think it was back in the early 90s i think he was broke the bank of england yeah sounds right so and i think that that's a very very important starting point for this podcast because i think when most people think of investing what they actually mean is trading and i'd love you to give us your insights on trading versus investing helping people to identify which is which and what you prefer so you know they always say never argue with the person that's asking you the questions but <laughs> but i unfortunately i have to really argue so so i think george soros is the one of the world's most famous speculators one of the world's speculators. most speculators most famous traders okay. and actually i don't feel he was an investor and and so so by contrast you know just as an example yeah. and let's get into the detail but but an example of a great investor then would be Warren Buffett and they're probably not that different in age those two mm-hmm. uh, um, you know young gentlemen but uh, but the the difference is that someone who's a trader or a speculator they're buying something with the expectation that that they believe the price is either going to shoot up or fall they're not they're not saying that I'm going to buy something that I believe uh, has a fundamental value so so let's just give you a real example uh, you know if I believe that uh, Microsoft makes a lot of cash uh, they've got great product they've got great market share and, and they can continue to make 
um, increasing amounts of cash uh, for their shareholders over the next 10 years. I'm buying the the, the, the business today. It's got a price. There is a share price. Mm-hmm. But, but I believe over time that the cash that the company is generating will result in that price rising. I don't know when it will rise. I don't know if it will rise in a day, a week, a month, or a year. But the likelihood is over five or 10 or 15 years mm-hmm. that what I pay today, it will be worth a lot more money in the future. And if I'm really lucky, they'll be paying me some dividends while I'm going. In contrast, a speculator might say, I'm going to buy gold because I believe that the world is in a fearful state. They believe North Korea is going to drop a bomb on South Korea. China is going to invade Taiwan and the price of gold is going to rise. Now, you need quite a lot of events to happen for that to move the price of gold up. But gold itself doesn't have an intrinsic value. It's not as if Mm. you're earning uh, cash from your gold while you've got it, or it's not like gold is growing its market share and and you know and branding itself differently. It's it's a piece of gold, and so a trader or a speculator is buying it because they believe there is a tide of 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 sentiment that's going to push the price in one direction or another. So they they've got generally a much shorter time frame when they make the investment decision, uh, and and they might even be borrowing money to make, make their investment. So then they might actually be using complicated derivative structures or they might literally have bor- borrowed money and, and they've got a, a, a limited time frame, and then they, they hope that that thing rises. Uh, and, and so for them, there is not really a big margin of safety if their position, if they, let's say gold, if they, if the, you know, you, you George Soros buys gold and it doesn't go up. None of the things that he predicted would cause the price of gold to rise have mm. actually happened. Then he's sitting on gold. It's a dead asset. He's borrowed money from the bank and he's got an interest cost. He's got to pay the interest and, and he's just sitting there and, the, and life's getting worse for him every single day. At some point, he's going to sell the gold, settle the debt with the bank, and then probably have to pay a bit extra in. Mm. So, so the risks to a speculator or a trader are enormous. And and very often, because the timeframes are so short and they've got very specific deadlines, you know, it's a you, you know, if it's a structure, then then it might be a one month or a three month structure or a six month structure. They they can't afford to let their view, even if it turned out to be right over five years, they can't let that happen over five years because they've got a holding cost for the money and something they need to do now. Well, I think I think just to add to that, I think look, I'm I'm not a trader. You know, my my view is more around long term investing. But having worked in the industry for so long, I mean, my view of trading is, again, similar to yours. I think there's lots of inputs that, that traders use. There's something called technical investing, which is basically looking at the price charts, the movement of the value of the asset, the ABC corrections and other instruments that they use to make decisions. Whilst I'm not a huge believer in these things, there are a lot of people that do it. And again, like you say, there's lots of drivers of trading behavior. These are typically very fast actions with a very, very short time horizon where someone makes a decision, implements a change. And I think what typically impacts traders, funnily enough, as we discussed this earlier, is almost trading costs. The cost of moving your portfolio, not even I mean, if you were short selling or using debt to um, bet on the price of something going down, in addition to that, you've, you've got that trading cost, the moving in and out, the bid offer spreads. Those things take an incredible amount of energy. But funnily enough, I think there are many people who don't, won't even call themselves traders who actually do so just because they've turned over their portfolio quite quickly based on very, very short news sentiments. So I think that's one of the key things that I think is an a problem because that really does impact people's returns. And, you know, in my professional body, in the CFA body, and actually in the textbooks, it is very, very clear about what they believe is um, a a way of generating long-term value for clients. 
you've got to be very, very careful about transaction costs when you are doing this. So I'm, again, like you, I'm more of an investor. So I think this leads me more onto what is your desired investment strategy? When you think about global investing, and one of the things I'm actually going to come onto is your personal global portfolio, which I think lots of people would like to know about. But before we get there, I think let's just start with an understanding of what is your investment strategy? How do you like, where do you put money? So, so I think uh, if I'm going to invest, um, I'm, I always have a bias to shares. I, mm-hmm. I, I believe shares are uh, the most productive asset class. In other words, they're the ones that that grow the fastest above inflation. Uh, they have the longest history of being the most rewarding investment for for people to put money into. Not rewarding for the hedge fund manager or or, or the you know the, the portfolio manager, but actually for the end investor who's mm. put money in there and, and was expecting a return. So, so I like shares, and, and I think for me, um, I'm not really that keen as an individual to buy single shares on my own. And unfortunately, my my history of of being able to choose individual shares is really stock picker. Yeah, as a stock picker is really poor. Uh, and and actually, you know, often you know more than 25 years of being in this industry, I've also realized a lot of other people are pretty poor at this as well. So, so for me. I'd like to be in either an exchange traded fund or, or or a unit trust, something which is really spread and has a big bias to to being in an index, for example. I, I, I mean, I talk a lot about index investing. So, so I think that for me, lots of diversification. If I if I can only choose one thing, it'll probably be an index. To, in in mm-hmm. all honesty, but uh, but if I've got a bit of choice, I know I know you you wanted to talk about it, but I'm already there now uh, about how I would do it. Uh, I wouldn't mind actually spreading that a little bit further. In other words, I think there is an opportunity to buy into companies and to buy into shares where where um, th- there is an element that of of risk management and diversification. Mm. So so I'm, I'm throwing some jargon here. So let, let's just simplify it. Uh, if I buy the index, let's just say I buy an index that that, that consists of the the biggest companies in the world. They are. They, I've got no input in that. They are going to rise and fall dependent on what the, all the stock markets in the world think, and they push those those prices of those shares up and down. Uh, and and so, when I do that, diversification is important to me. And, and what I'm what I'm talking about now is: can I find companies that that aren't necessarily in the index, or maybe they don't make up such a big part of the index? Mm. And, and and can I find a way to get some growth that looks very different to the index? So you know, so in in the recent times. Technology companies became a huge part of the of the American index, and it was just driving the 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 prices of American indices through the roof. Mm. And so then I start to think to myself, I'm not a market timer, but but I can do a, a mathematical calculation and say, well, these are expensive. No matter mm. what, they're expensive. Are they going to carry on getting expensive? I don't know. Are they going to fall in price? I don't know. But but what I do know is, can I? find something that can get me into shares that don't look like that, that are cheaper. And for example, if the world does fall apart for a period of time, stock markets fall, can I find something that will fall less? And so that's that's the, the important part to me. And, and I think that I, I like to have the combination of the two. So the index, because I believe that the, over time, that'll be my big engine of growth. Mm-hmm. But then to find things that are, and shares or investment companies that look different to the index that maybe give me capital protection when the world falls apart, they're still going to lose money, but hopefully not as much. And they perform at different times and at uh, in, in different conditions. And, the, and then I'm saying to myself, one plus one gets me to two and a quarter. And, and that's what I'm really looking for. I think, one of, you know, when I was reading your book, one of the really interesting things I came across, and I actually, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't really focused on them for quite a while, is investment trusts and investment companies. You know, everyone talks about ETFs, and they are phenomenal vehicles, you know, and they link to passive investing. But I think 
you know, investing in an investment trust is almost like an investing in, in an antique structure for um, uh, almost like an antique ETF in a way. And so I think one of those engines of growth that you talk about in your personal portfolio, and, I, and you know, I am going to say exactly what your personal portfolio is, so I'm getting to it in a moment, but I'd, I'd like to go into why you use investment trusts themselves. Because I think, so, and I just, I just want to add in there, I think that in the future, there will be a greater use of investment companies and investment trusts in portfolios in the future, because I think they are phenomenal permanent capital vehicles. So, so just for people who may be not familiar with them, uh, they're, they're, as you say, antique from the point of view uh, that some of them go back to the 1880s, mm. 1860s, uh, and, and they are they are companies that are listed on a stock exchange. Historically, the, the London Stock Exchange has been the home yep. for most of them and, and the biggest ones. Um, and what happens is these companies will get money from investors on day one when they start, and and that's considered permanent money. So what happens is they 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 sell shares to investors, and and the investors then give them just a silly example, hundred million pounds, because mm-hmm. we're talking about the, the London Stock Exchange. Then that company takes that money and it starts to invest in businesses, and they could be listed shares. They could be you mentioned farm farmland in a in a in, a, in, a, in another time. Uh, it could be anything. So so there'll be a particular uh, agreement, and and the the jargon for that is a mandate. So so this investment company will promise that this is how they're going to invest the money. They will look at certain investments. And then they will invest the money in those businesses or farms or whatever the deal is. And, and the idea there is that if the stock market rises or falls, it doesn't really have an impact on money coming in or out of that investment company because the money is permanent. The, co- the company owns the money. If you're an investor in an investment trust or an investment company and you want to buy in after the, the company's been uh, been listed, that means you just need to buy the share that's trading on the, trading on the stock exchange. If you want to sell, same principle applies. But it's not going to take that 100 million pounds out of the company itself. And what's, what's attractive to me in the current environment, uh, why these old structures are uh, good again, I think, is because unfortunately a lot of big good companies are no longer listed on the stock exchange. So, you know, you're finding, you know, some of these maybe new companies, you know, the new tech companies, the new biotech companies, some of the new energy companies are saying to themselves, it's not worth the time, the hassle, the cost of being listed. So what we're going to do is we're going to stay private for longer. That doesn't mean that they don't have outside shareholders. They just mm. don't go on a stock exchange. And those are the companies, I believe, that are the next generation of growth. Those are the companies that are moving the world forward. And and if you're in a unit trust or an, uh, or an ETF, it's not easy to buy into those companies because unit trusts have rules, ETFs have rules. They can't buy unlisted companies. It's, it's mainly, it's also liquidity as well. You know, this is the, the other thing is that, you know, with those private companies, you can't get your money back instantaneously. It's a long investment time horizon. So you need vehicles like investment companies that are considered permanent capital. So they don't have to deal with the flows in and out of retail investors. They literally can have a very long-term investment holding period. And, and to me, you add a great index, and a great in, uh, an investment company or a, a few investment companies together, uh, you, you're going to get the benefit then of that diversification, uh, unlisted companies, listed companies, put it all together with a long time horizon. And I, I'm, I mean, that's my belief. It's a probability question that, that over time that, that does give me good growth. So actually now, I think before we wrap up, because we're almost out of time, I want to actually show people exactly what your personal port- offshore portfolio is. So it's 40% in an MSCI World ETF, Exchange Traded Fund, 20% in an Emerging Markets Exchange Traded Fund, 20% in the Scottish Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, 
and 20% in the personal assets trust. In the dying minutes of the podcast, we'd love to understand a little bit more about how you came up with this allocation and how it works for you. So, so the world index is, I think we've, we've probably covered fairly well, nicely spread, uh, you know, gives us exposure to all the big developed uh, countries and economies in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I think that that should be the single biggest holding because that is the stabilizer. That's the thing that I think will be a good engine for growth over time. The emerging market exposure is primarily because I think the thing that drives stock markets and drives economies over a decade or two or three is the the population of that of an emerging market or a country and its productivity. So it's not just the the, the population on its own. It's saying are there new uh, new young people entering the job market who are educated, are hardworking, are productive. Because if they are, then and and they they outnumber the older people in the in the in the population who maybe are retiring. They, then you've got an engine of growth that that can move that economy forward. And I think emerging markets they they have the right demographic profile. And some emerging markets have highly productive populations, mm. highly educated. So I, I like that. So it's a very fundamental. 20 or 30 year view. It's not based on what I think is going to happen next week. Mm. And then those, the, the Scottish mortgage, long history of being able to choose the, the companies that are changing the world now um, and, and changing the way that business gets done. So you know, they were, they were one of the earliest investors in Amazon, one of the earliest investors in Tesla, long before they became, uh, you know, well-respected, well-loved businesses in, in on general stock markets. So, so Scottish mortgage have a, a history of doing that. Personal assets trust, very different. The, the, you know, they're, they're a little bit more of the, the people that always think it's going to rain, so they've always got an umbrella. So they spread their assets across different kinds of, of you know, cash, bonds, property, shares. They're, they're quite dynamic in, in moving the money around, not because they're trying to chase profits necessarily, but because they're trying to manage risk. So, so that's kind of the risk manager part of the, the portfolio for me. So, so I think putting that all together in a structure like that, uh, um, to me, think, says I'm getting that one plus one gets me to two and a quarter that I've mentioned before. But I, I mean, I, I, I think it's important to say it's most likely going to lose money in two or three out of the uh, uh, two or three years out of every ten. Mm. So, so people listening to this, when you lose money and you've decided to copy my structure, just know I'm promising you you are going to lose money sometimes, and I'm also not promising you that you're going to double your money every year. Uh, the, the likelihood is, I think it's a good growth portfolio, but we're dealing with probabilities and not guarantees. Warren, thank you very much. I think it's been a fascinating episode. It's great to get to know a bit more about here how you invest. And much appreciated. Thanks, Grant. Great to be on the show again. While South Africa may be your home, there's literally a world of long-term investment opportunity beyond our borders. And it couldn't be easier to take advantage. With the Artvest Global Wealth Builder, you can enjoy worldwide equity investment exposure. Yes, get access to 49 developed and emerging markets, comprising of over 9,000 stocks across 10 sectors, all through a single investment priced in South African rands and all in a few minutes. Best of all, there's no paperwork. Your wealth deserves the world. Visit www.artvest.co.za now. Artvest is an authorized FSP and is powered by Outsurance. All investments are exposed to risk, not guaranteed, and dependent on the performance of the underlying assets. T's and C's apply.